0: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Liebell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Donna El Kurd to discuss her new book, Polarized and Demobilized Legacies of Authoritarianism in Palestine. The book was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Dr. El Kurd is a researcher at the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies and assistant professor at its sister institution, the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies in Qatar. She specializes in comparative politics and international relations of the Arab world. Welcome to the podcast, Donna. Thank you so much for having me. So two general questions motivate your research. What demobilizes a once-mobilized society? And how does international involvement amplify or suppress these dynamics? And in your case study of Palestine, you conclude that the Palestinian Authority – more successfully demobilized as an indigenous institution than the Israelis were able to do as occupiers. Um, And this is from the book. You say, despite Israel's greater resources uh, and international backing, the Palestinian Authority was able to utilize its ties within society and covert authoritarian strategies to accomplish what Israeli oppression was unable to do. Polarize and Demobilize the Palestinian Population. I I love books that have great titles uh, that give us the the thesis right away, and yours certainly does. Um, But that's not the end of the story. You say that international pressures from countries, including the United States, um, also account for growing polarization um, and authoritarianism. So, Let's start with how it is that involvement from countries such as the United States create a disjuncture between the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian society. Like, Why did it matter so much for um, others to get involved from the outside?
1: Yeah, so um, basically we know from a lot of literature on authoritarianism that even authoritarian regimes, they do face um, – you know what we call audience costs. Um, they do have some feedback loops within their own society. Um, that doesn't mean that they're, you know, obviously not one hundred percent accountable or whatever. But at the end of the day, that there's some um, mechanisms of of societal pressure on the regime and vice versa. But with the Palestinian Authority specifically, and, and I argue that this um, kind of this kind of dynamic you know, replicates itself in in other countries in the Middle East. Uh, With the Palestinian Authority, we find that the international intervention, it disrupts the feedback loop between um, Palestinian leadership and Palestinian society. Um, First, by insulating the regime um, from their society, basically. Um, So if the the regime is able to, is either pushed into taking, you know, measures that uh, it doesn't necessarily want to take, or um, sometimes conducts itself, or you know, uh, pursues particular policies. It knows it's unpop is unpopular with the society, but it also knows that they'll be protected as you know, the American uh, partner or the, the 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 partner with Israel uh, according to the 1994 Oslo Accords. So basically, in that sense, it insulates the regime, um, and it inserts. So international intervention also inserts itself into decision making within the regime. And all of this leads to dynamics where, um, you know, different groups in society are no longer able to exert pressure on uh, their leadership, um, even if not through democratic institutions necessarily, but they're no longer able to, as they have done in the past. Um, And um, it gives space for the regime to become more and more authoritarian.
0: Uh, Thanks so much. I think it will be helpful to the potential readers, the listeners today to understand a little bit about how mobilized a society Palestine was before, um, uh, the occupation. So I was wondering if you could flesh that out a little bit. What, what, what characterized the, uh, Palestinian society, you describe it as highly mobilized. What, what did that look like?
1: Yeah. So actually, um, Basically the the periods that I talk about in the book are um after 1948 so it's it's uh, after the occupation and particularly after the 1967 war um when Israel occupied the Palestinian the the remaining parts of of historic Palestine and the Palestinian territories the West Bank and Gaza um and what I mean when I say that it was highly mobilized um is that despite the fact that Palestinian society lived on this under this military occupation they were able to sustain um you know these these organizations within society uh, a pretty vibrant civil society of women unions all sorts of student groups um that were able to organize themselves um in the absence of you know official palestinian institutions uh, under military occupation and they were able also to exert pressure on the israeli occupation at certain parts of their history so we have um In the late 80s, we had the uh, first intifada, which means the Palestinian, sorry, it means an Arabic uprising. Um, So the first Palestinian uprising um, in the the late 1980s, where this, you know, they were able to maintain um, a high level of coordination in the face of high levels of repression. Um, They mostly adhered to a nonviolent, uh, strategy. They were able to get most of society to adhere to that strategy. Most groups to adhere to that strategy. And that's not, you know, not a small feat for people who lack these official kinds of institutions or like, you know, government institutions that exist to represent them. Um, and they're, again, they were able to get concessions from, uh, from the Israeli occupation during that time. And even in the, uh, late nineties, early two thousands, when the second Palestinian, Tfadha, um, it was much more fragmented for reasons I explain in the book, but um, still, they were able to sustain a high, you know a, a high level of protest. They were able to sustain strikes. They were able to face the occupation when when conditions became untenable. Now, fast forward to today, and this is no longer the case. Um, there have been conditions that are worsening really in in the Palestinian territories. Um, more you know uh, land seizures, more restrictions, more repression. And Palestinians have not been able to sustain themselves to the, to the wide degree that um, once existed uh, in, in protest or in, in any sort of mobilization. Uh, you know, we still have pockets of mobilization, you know, certain protest movements erupting uh, in reaction to very localized events. But it's not it's not how it was, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago where, you know, wide spots of society are engaging in the same uh, protest movement.
0: Um, you emphasize in the book that before 1994, um, Palestinian society had, as you say, this sort of rich uh, civil society. It was organized. There were a lot of uh, organizations. And you, you attribute it to education and also reaction to the Israeli occupation. And I was wondering if you want to um, flesh that out just a little bit. Uh,
1: yeah, so... Um, this is I'm building on work that's done by other um, you know great scholars on this topic like Wendy Perlman. But um, basically, Palestinian society um, was the most educated society um, in you know in compar- in regional comparison, and because of that, because of the high rate of people going to colleges and engaging with 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 you know other types of Palestinians from other you know, segments of society, um, you found that they were pretty good about organizing themselves um, around different political groups, around different identities. Um, And that was the case, you know, for a long period of time after 1967, after the Israeli occupation, um, up to, like you mentioned, 1994. Um, There was obviously the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which um, was like a, national liberation movement that functioned out of a number of different countries outside of historic Palestine. And they had their um, ties to certain groups and certain uh, leadership in the Palestinian ter- territories itself. But for the, for the most part, much of this organizing was very much organic and grassroots. Um, and the Palestinian Liberation Organization was not heavy handed or, or like directing this kind of uh, organization that was happening in, uh, in in the Palestinian territories before 1994. Now what happens in 1994 is that the Palestinian Liberation Organization, as the representative of the Palestinian people, you know, officially um, uh, they uh, signed the Oslo Accords with uh, the Israeli government. Um, and the idea is, you know, it's going to set up a state. So many of the Palestinian Liberation Organization leadership and, and, you know, the cadres that uh, exist in that organization, they co- they return to, to the Palestinian territories for the first time. Um, and that creates, you know, different dynamics uh, where much of those grassroots organizations that existed uh, kind of are co-opted or fall by the wayside.
0: Now, that's really helpful. So before we go walk through the chapters, which are so well organized, uh, I want to say to everybody listening that, I sometimes fear the comparative politics books, the names, the dates, the methodology that's not necessarily my own. This is a book that really makes the history, the people, the periods, um, and how the work is being done so clear. Uh, It's just, it's beautifully written. And because of that, I'm going to actually use the chapters as a way of, of getting us through the argument and uh, some of the most interesting parts of the empirical case, but let me ask you a little bit about how you chose the case. Um, sometimes people think about the Palestinian Authority as as atypical because um, it's not a full state, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you chose the Palestinian Authority as the case study that helps you answer these more general questions and. And and how it is that it applies to other regimes, given that it it, it isn't the typical state. Uh,
1: yeah, definitely. First of all, thank you so much for your kind words about the book. Um, so yeah, I'm. You know, the the short answer is that the Palestinian Authority is atypical. Obviously, it's a it's kind of a quasi state. Um, it's it's still functioning in this kind of occupation. Um, you know, there's no part of the Palestinian tori- territories that is free of Israeli occupation, even the areas that the Palestinian authority controls. So 100% it is atypical in that sense. Um, but for me, um, I thought it was a good case first, because I was interested in the case itself, you know, on its own merits. I'm interested in why this society that was highly mobilized, how did it become demobilized? I'm interested in those dynamics. What's the role that authoritarianism is playing in, um, you know what? What societal impacts is authoritarianism uh, having uh, on on this dynamic? Um, but also, I think that it features many of um, you know the same variables and the same relationships that we find in the rest of the region. So it's a you know even though it's it's kind of a quasi state, um, Palestinian institutions, Palestinian state institutions exist. Um, they exist in um, you know, very real, tangible ways, you know, brick and mortar, they have an impact on people's lives. Um, And it's not that, you know, strange in the region to have such penetrated regimes. And by penetrated, I mean, where there's a lot of like international presence and a lot of international intervention, including something like the Israeli occupation. Um, So for me, it's a matter of degrees. Um, This, you know, the Palestinian Authority as a case might be a highly penetrated case, um, but mm-hmm. you know you can account for that in the analysis and in in the in the you know in one of the later chapters in the book, I try to apply the same argument to um, less penetrated cases uh, you know I call uh, across what I call a state sovereignty spectrum. so um, for me, I thought that many of the same dynamics exist in the Palestinian case that exist elsewhere in the in the, in the Arab world where there's these regimes that are becoming more insulated from their societies because of international intervention to some degree and um how that authoritarianism these these decades of authoritarianism are having you know a societal impact um on a, you know capacity for collective action on polarization and on many of the variables that i'm interested in so for me that that, that was the reason why i chose it um because it it was interesting uh, you know in itself um, but also, it spoke to the rest of the region.
0: So one of the things I love about books is the acknowledgments, because there is always some interesting story in them. And also, it's it's interesting to watch an author thank the people who've helped them along the way. And you're an incredibly gracious scholar who acknowledges the support you've received. At one point in the acknowledgments, you thank the employees of the Palestinian authorities, institutions, for for making time to be interviewed and sharing their expertise. And then you stop and you mention that in Palestinian society, particularly within the diaspora, it's, it's easy to dismiss the people who work for the Palestinian Authority, you say, as traitors, as collaborators with Israeli occupation. And, and you note that it's become common to contrast the traitorists and the collaborators with the heroes and the resistors. So I was wondering if you would explain the challenge of, of writing this case, given that tendency. And second, if you'd also just tell us a little bit about the methods that you use in the book um, to try to understand the public, elites, and what you call a sort of mixed method of quantitative and qualitative approaches.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah. um, I've never actually been asked about my acknowledgements before. This is uh, super fun for me to talk about, actually. (laughs) Um, So there's kind of a tendency, particularly, like I said, in the acknowledgements for people who have a distance from, you know, they're far away. They theorize about what's happening on the ground, but they're they're not on the ground. They're not facing the same pressures to lack nuance. Um, and that kind of, you know, that part of the acknowledgments was written to to people in my own community who um, are not being nuanced about the situation. Because at the end of the day, what what I'm trying to explain to to a large degree in this book is that, you know, sometimes we arrive at suboptimal outcomes in spite of people's, you know, uh, best attempts. Um, right. Not not to you know whitewash any. Um, bad policies that the Palestinian Authority engages in. And, you know, Lord knows there are many um, not to uh, get, you know, to let any Palestinian leader off the hook for any kind of mistakes they've made. But at the end of the day, a lot of these people, including many of the elites that, you know, the, some of the senior officials that I, that I, um, you know, was in contact with and I interviewed for the book that they, you know, many of them, either they had been in exile all their lives or they, or they had established themselves in the diaspora and dropped everything to go back after nineteen ninety four because they truly believed that this was a turning point and they truly believed in the promise that was given to them in nineteen ninety four with the Oslo Accords that in five years they were going to have their own state. And even though it was a state on the remnants of what they remembered as their society, they were willing to take that. And so we can't possibly just dismiss all of their motivations as being self-serving or something like this. Like What's happening is more structural. It's it's more, it's 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 by, des- you know, basically what I'm trying to argue is how the Palestinian Authority be- began to play this role of suppressing its own people and it found itself in the spine of having to answer to their Israeli and American patrons in spite of what their society wanted. Um, that wasn't what anybody signed up for necessarily. And and it, that was by design in the Oslo Accords rather than as, you know, um, some personal choice made by some bureaucrats. I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that was basically. No,
0: no, it's very, it's very clarifying. No, it's terrific. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So that, so that was why I, I wanted to, you know, write that somewhere in the book, um, to say that there was more nuance than people often talk about, um, in terms of the mixed methods. So, um, I was, you know, trained, um, in kind of a mixed methods, uh, department and, and, um, also engaged in a lot of, you know workshops that are available to graduate students and things like this that um, could help me develop different kinds of methods because I I firmly believe that you know depending on what the research question is like you kind of have to use the tool that's most most suited to that research question and because my research question was uh, both uh, you know it it was kind of large and and it had a large timeline that I was talking about and m- many different relationships I was interested in. So I really needed to break down this kind of overall dynamic into, you know, very specific research questions. I try to address one for each chapter um, and use whatever tools are best to corroborate um, uh, uh, my, my theoretical arguments in each chapter. So in the first um, empirical chapter, I use a nationally representative survey and I embed a survey experiment as well as these interviews I did with Palestinian authority uh, political uh, leadership. Um, and then in the uh, next chapter, I use um, so lab and field experiments um, in addition to some interviews I did with uh, different uh, activists activists from different uh, uh, groups in Palestinian uh, politics, as well as these case studies of um, different protest movements in. Villages and, and uh, you know these kinds of um, marginalized spaces in the Palestinian territories, and then um, I also use an original uh, data set of protest data um, covering the from 2007 to 2016, which is the, the the time frame that I argue in the book represents the consolidation of the Palestinian authority, um, and that protest data helps me f- basically confirm um some of the uh conclusions of the earlier chapters is you know is the Palestinian authority actually having an impact on mobilization where it controls uh, territory um and that's that's what i try to do there and then the the case studies in the end are um intended to see how well the argument travels to other uh, other cases and i look at iraqi kurdistan and bahrain so basically i'm you know very eclectic mix um but I'm just using whatever is available um, to, you know, uh, basically triangulate the data from, you know, come, come at it from different perspectives.
0: So, Donna, when you did your field work and you did the face-to-face interviews with the people working for the Palestinian Authority, how did you find them? Were they suspicious of you? How open were they? Um, how, did they how did they think about you um, and, and is there something you need to do to make them, um, less suspicious, more open, et cetera?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, um, dynamic, honestly, because I mean, I think that the, something should be, so, many people have written about this, I'm sure. And perhaps I should write something myself, um, about how being a native to the case, you know, um, both, uh, represents, uh, opportunities and challenges, um, so for me, like, it, passing in society is, is pretty close-knit. Um, people may not know me personally, but they know people I'm related to. They know people, you know, they, they know who I am kind of in a societal context. That represented opportunities in the sense that they were more forthcoming. Um, they they um, did not assume necessarily ill intent or anything like this. And and many were, were very honest. Um, I was surprised how honest. But, you know, one of them... Literally, um, so I was doing an interview with somebody and then, uh, you know, somebody walked in and interrupted the interview. And so introductions were made and this person looked at me and said, you have to write a dissertation explaining how we got to this mess. Um, and so many of them were, were very forthcoming because I was, they, they, they had this assumption that, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm from Jerusalem. I'm, I'm, I'm part of their society. they, they they didn't necessarily suspect me for those reasons. Um, but in in other senses it can pose challenges because you also have the, you know, baggage that might come into the interview that you as a researcher don't necessarily have, but because maybe somebody in your family is from a particular political group, like there are assumptions made. Um, so you just have to, you know, clarify very, you know, um, honestly and, and, uh, clearly, um, you know, what your positionality is and and what you're doing and, um, you know, go through, go through all of that, um, and, and build trust. And I didn't use any kind of, um, ethnographic methods necessarily in this book, but interestingly, I, I, it kind of tipped me off that in future research, I should kind of build on, on, um, on, on the ethnographic, uh, tools that might be useful in this kind of, in this kind of context, because you really do need to build trust with your, uh, with your participants uh, sometimes in these kinds of uh, more, you know, contexts that have more repression and one and more suspicion.
0: No, it, and, uh Heath Brown who used to be one of the hosts of this show is now doing a podcast about collaborative writing and what is the process that people go through when they're not just doing their own scholarship. And a conversation um, about people who do field work, both as insiders and as outsiders would really be fascinating because I think you're right that there's advantages, disadvantages. Um, On the one hand, you may be bought a certain uh, insider status. On the other hand, you might be seen as a a traitor if you write something critical so it's yeah, it's really a difficult a, yeah, line to walk
1: yeah yeah that was definitely a concern uh for me uh, because i wanted to be as fair as possible i but i you know objectivity does not mean neutrality um uh, this is something that uh, dr azmi shado is a, is an arab thinker he 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 says often which is i can be objective even if perhaps you know i have a particular opinion about something that's happening right and I really wanted to be objective and fair, and that was one of my concerns. Is I didn't want people to think that I was like an, a native informant of some kind. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's I'm not sure how much I achieved that. But that's a tension I, you know, I do have to think about when I was writing the book.
0: Oh, I think you were very, very successful, Donna. Oh, not um, I Let's. let's- do the chapters of the book. We've done some of chapter one, which is the theory, the, how these mechanisms and dynamics work. You, but you may want to add something before we move to chapter two. Uh,
1: yeah, sure. So basically, um, so let me just go through um, kind of the theoretical argument, if you don't mind.
0: Oh, please. No, no, no. we want it.
1: Okay. So so basically the book, um, it, it kind of uh, looks at, uh, a two-part causal chain. The first part looks at the impact of international of international involvement on the Palestinian Authority. And then the second part looks at the impact of Palestinian Authority on society, kind of that externally penetrated Palestinian Authority on society. So that first half of the causal chain is basically attempting to, to test theories of international involvement. Um, and not in the sense that, like, my one case can prove or disprove existing theories on international invo- involvement, but in the sense, that kind of in the George and Bennett sense of Using a case to highlight the scope conditions on existing theories, um, and then the second half of the causal chain serves much more theory building uh, purposes. Again, in the George and Bennett, um, you know, framework, it's kind of like a heuristic case study, in the sense that it's trying to illuminate, you know, new relationships, new variables, and that second part is basically making the argument that there's a link between authoritarianism. And polarization and capacity for collective action. So, um, as uh, author- basically, my, my hypotheses are that authoritarian strategies generate polarization because um, when authoritarian regimes use different strategies selectively, uh, you know, targeting certain groups while co-opting others, this itself is causing polarization because the group that is um, you know repressed shares in a common trauma and. There, you know, it builds kind of in-group and out-group dynamics, um, and then the the second part of the causal, ch- or sorry, the, the theoretical argument is the link between polarization and collective action. Um, so, because of this kind of selective authoritarian strategy situation, basically, I argue that um, it tra- it causes polarization, and that translates to collective action because it breeds insularity within groups and grievances between them, uh, making it you know more and more difficult for groups to either initiate mobilization or coordinate with others um and i have you know uh, a number of uh, different reasons i i don't know how uh, how much detail i should go into but but basically that's kind of the theoretical argument then the whole idea is to see how is this long lasting kind of legacy of authoritarianism impacting how people coordinate with each other how society works
0: now, that's a beautiful overview thank you so much right. <laughs> um Let's talk. Um, let's talk about chapter two, and if we need to, we'll go back um, to some of the theory uh, as we, uh, as you sort of um, bring out some of the findings. So the second chapter is called "Americans Have Taught Us." There's a difference between democracy and creating problems. Um, so, what effect did international involvement have on? the preferences of the Palestinian leadership and the public and the Palestinian public, because you distinguish those two. And so I think that would be a good place for us to start.
1: Right. Yeah. So basically um, I I outlined in the chapter using these interviews I did with, with Palestinian political leadership in in different um, ministries and different uh, positions Um, because of international involvement, particularly American involvement that perhaps used the rhetoric of democracy, but pushed policy in a very different direction, including in 2006 when, um, basically the, the George Bush administration was pushing for elections to happen in the Palestinian territories because they wanted to say like, you know, there was this whole paradigm of democracy promotion and they wanted to say that they had, uh, helped the Palestinians, um, uh, go through democratic elections. Um, and what that what that did was it brought uh, people from the Islamist party, Hamas, to power through very fair and free elections. Um, and so instead of accepting those fair and free elections, um, basically, American decision makers um, supported certain factions in the outgoing uh, um, political party, uh, Fateh, to mount a coup and and to take back control of um, and that's what happened. And that caused a huge rift in the Palestinian territories that exist until this day. So we have two different governments, um, one in Gaza and one in the West Bank. And that occurred because of um, American intervention. And that's just, you know, that's the most stark example. But it happens in small ways on in regular, uh, you know, on, on, on an everyday basis as well. So these uh, my, these uh, uh, these uh, people that I interviewed would, would tell me, you know, we would we would want to put together a training program. We have money to put together a training program. Um, but then the the, the the Americans would look at the list of people that were inviting for the training program, and they would tell us to remove certain people that they didn't agree with politically or that had history of protest or that had been arrested for, um, you know, facing the occupation at some point in their life or whatever. So it's it happens kind of in very small ways and in very big ways, this American intervention that pushes um, the Palestinian Authority to um, be much less, um, uh, you know, accountable to its public, and so what happens, and I and I, I detail this in the book. Um, what happened particularly after two thousand six, and th- that was a huge kind of rupture in in uh, in Palestinian politics and and even in people's thinking, um, was that you know Palestinian elites started to kind of internalize this like, you know what, maybe we're not ready for democracy. Um, Because even when we want to, like, you know, the international community doesn't back us up and uh, people, you know, the the Americans get involved and and what happens is we turn guns on each other and and there's, there's no um, benefit to doing it. So maybe we're not ready for democracy. They start to kind of use these arguments to, 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 I don't know. Um, assuage the common dissonance uh, basically to say you know we're passing in society we we're not ready for democracy, we're not ready for these accountability mechanisms. we need to get ready, and clearly we're not ready because the Americans say so right um so that's at the level mm-hmm. of the elites and then at the at the public level um kind of I think the assumption in in some of the literature is that you know the elites are anti democratic and in the public is, you know, they they would always want more democracy. But what I find is it's a little bit more nuanced um, because the Palestinian Authority is, you know, one of the biggest employers in town as well. Um, and it employs large segments of the Pal- of Palestinian society and it represents large segments of the Palestinian society in that sense. Um, what we find when I, when I did the survey is that well, certain segments of the Palestinian population want democracy and accountability. Um, and certain segments are wary of it for reasons, you know, uh, related to international intervention and and, um, possible international intervention. And basically the line uh, is that if you are employed by the Palestinian Authority, or if you have a family member employed by the Palestinian Authority, you're more likely to be wary of calls for democracy, calls for accountability, because you're worried that, you know, international patrons will get involved that uh, the Israeli tanks will roll down the streets, that the, the Americans will you know, arm a certain faction to engage in a coup. Whereas the um, parts of society that um, are less connected to the Palestinian Authority, maybe they're not directly empo- employed or, you know, they work in the private sector or whatever, they are much more um, uh, supportive of democracy and accountability. Um, and they, they, you know, the, the international dimension is, is less worris- worrisome for them, um, if that makes sense.
0: No, it does. And, and it really brings us to the next part of the book, which is, I mean, that explains how it is that the Palestinian Authority could, could become authoritarian in this way. Um, and then the next chapter is looking at, well, what is the effect of that authoritarianism on the polarization within Palestinian society and how it affects their ability for collective action. So very briefly, if you could just um lay out a little bit of what happens in chapter three for us.
1: Yeah, so I you know you get this kind of inclination from the first chapter that um like there is this kind of polarizing divide people who are connected to Palestinian authority and people who are not. Um, but I wanted to test like, is this I wanted to test it kind of in, in more depth um, what exactly about what, what kinds of authoritarian strategies are work? you know, are, um, are doing the work here, which aspects of society, which segments. So all of that um, I kind of wanted to, to work through. And so I utilized the lab and field experiment conducted at Birzeit University, which is a, a university in the West Bank. That's um, pretty nationally representative in the sense that it has, you know, people from all walks of life uh, in Palestinian society come to visit. So um, for that reason, um, I thought that it would be a, a good kind of um, context to, to test these dynamics. And I conducted these, uh, uh, these lab experiments where um, I asked um, my participants to um, sort themselves into different uh, you know, political affiliations, let me know what political affiliation they, were, um, they most agreed with, And then I, you know, one is the the political party that's in control in the Palestinian Authority, which is Fatah. And then there's the Islamist party and then there's the leftist party. Um, And then I, you know, asked them questions about um, whether or not they would be willing to work with others, whether or not they would be willing to protest with others, whether or not they would be willing to sign a petition or sign up, you know, a certain number of hours to engage in a campus campaign. And what I found was really interesting is that when they were reminded of repressive strategies on the part of the PA, groups that are considered, you know, um, for lack of a better word, kind of outgroups, uh, the, the groups that are not in power, the groups that are in reality actually being repressed, they were the ones least likely to want to work with others. Um, they, were the, they were the ones that were uh, most likely to be more, you know, express more insular uh, 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 views and to have more grievances with other groups. Um, whereas the, the group that, um, you know, affiliated with the, the ruling party, Fateh, uh, which is the party that's in power with the Palestinian Authority, um, th- this did not impact them when you prompted them with, with, uh, mentions of repression or, or anything like that, it, it, you know, they know that this is not something that is impacting them in real life. Um, repression didn't have an impact on them. Cooptation, uh, priming didn't have an impact on them. Whereas the groups that are, you know, um, actually marginalized, they become more insular and, uh, express, uh, more grievances with groups across the political spectrum and much less likely to work with them, with others. And so that was kind of, um, a breakthrough for me is like how the, these authoritarian strategies directly impact how people view one another and how people work with each other. Um, and so that was, that was the, uh, the takeaway from the third chapter. And I, I also, um, conducted interviews with with activists. Um, So let's see if this is actually traveling outside the lab. And um, uh, did these kind of um, little case studies of of protest movements um, uh, in different villages in Palestine, where protest movements emerged and then devolved and why did they devolve and whether or not the dynamics that I found in the lab experiment actually existed outside.
0: Donna, did you find when you were looking at the impact of authoritarian strategies, differences in terms of gender? Are women as likely to be activists? Are they affected by the authoritarian or do they um, use authoritarian measures in ways that are different from the male activists?
1: Um, So I did not focus on gender, truth be told, um, in in the like qualitative interviews um, in the, in the experiments I didn't find any kind of statistically significant difference between the, the, the genders. Um, but I think that that's a really interesting component that I, you know, I would be interested even to, uh, to build on um, because just from, you know, purely anecdotal evidence um, and also the, you know, some new research that's emerging from other scholars that there might also be a gender component as to um, which groups women are more likely to engage with and Mm -hmm. surprised that it might all, you know, there, there is an inclination for women to actually engage more with the Islamist groups than we might think. Um, But, you know, that's not the, that wasn't the focus of of my research. So I don't want to speak out of turn, but I, I think that there is something there. And I think that some you know some scholars that are currently working on this they're 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 picking up on it, and I would be interested in building on that work
0: um we we've talked a lot about the Palestinian case, but the book ends with an exploration of what it is that is more generalizable and that um, could be seen in other contexts so very briefly, I was wondering how it is that um this kind of international in involvement and demobilization can be seen um, elsewhere.
1: Yeah. So um, I end the, I have the book, uh, sorry, I have the chapter on um, protest data uh, that comes after the lab and field experiments where I, I, I test the, the conclusion of of the previous chapter. And then the last chapter is the um, chapter where I see if this kind of travels uh, to cases that I, like I said, are on the state sovereignty spectrum. So Palestine, we'd consider like the least sovereign because they're under, you know, direct military occupation. And then there's the case of Iraqi Kurdistan, which is more sovereign because you know constitutionally the uh, the KRG, the Kurdish regional government, is is allowed to exist. It's kind of a semi sovereign st- status. And then there's um, the case of Bahrain, which is you know a full state um, considered fully sovereign, but For reasons I explained in the chapter, um, there are high levels of international intervention across all of these. Um, And I talk about how this international intervention may have insulated uh, political leadership in all three of these cases, much like the the case of the Palestinian Authority, and increased authoritarianism, much like in the case of the Palestinian Authority, um, and polarized uh, Kurdish uh, society as well as Bahraini society. And so I talk about how uh, American intervention with, um, you know, different Kurdish liberation groups at certain s- stages in um, in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan's history basically insulated them, um, caused them to engage in very authoritarian, repressive dynamics. Um, there were attempts to challenge these, these kinds of, uh, you know, entrenched political elites in Iraqi Kurdistan, but they were able, because they're, you know, they have these institutional ties to the United States and, and, and to other uh, patrons, they were able to um, you know, suppress uh, attempts to to challenge them. And Iraqi Kurdish, uh, Kurdish society has become increasingly polarized between the KDP and the PUK. So, so that was one aspect. And in, in the Bahrain uh, case, I look at Bahrain particularly after the Arab Spring and the impact of Saudi and American intervention on um, the the protests and I build on Justin Gengler's work. Um, so basically, what we find is that at the beginning of the Arab Spring, we we have uh, Bahrainis from different backgrounds engaging in the protests, but um, you know, eventually, because especially because of international uh, backing for the regime, the regime is able to you know put uh, drive a wedge between them, and the the entire uprising becomes much more sectarian, and we you know, the impact of that continues to this day is that the um, opposition in Bahrain has become much more sectarian and much more polarized along sectarian lines between Sunni and Shia than um, perhaps um, it was inclined at the beginning of the Arab Spring um, or even in the history of Bahrain. So I I look at uh, even before the Arab Spring as well, the the political groups that existed that were not along sectarian lines, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what I tried to do in the last last chapter to show how um externally backed authoritarianism you know operates in more or less similar fashion across different cases so it's not just an issue of palestine and it's not just an issue of this society that's under occupation but it's how um ex- you know external intervention is is disrupting the feedback loop between state and societies in much of the region
0: so um before we end, and I want to ask you what your next project is. But before we do that, the the what you learned about Palestine, what does it? Um, how do you? Ha, ha, pardon me. How do you take what you've learned about Palestine and project what might happen, or how we might watch for developments with a different eye um, going forward?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it's a little, you know, uh, predictions, like, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough game to predict, I'd say, but I think that work, like uh, the research in my book, and, and a number of other scholars that work on this has showed that um, because of these dynamics, where we're going to find opposition emerging, and where we're going to see mobilization happening, are places we wouldn't traditionally think to look um, you know, for example, in uh, before 1994, before the Palestinian Authority, we'd find that, you know, the cities are more mobilized than the rural areas, obviously, because there's more institutions, there's more civil society, there's, like, greater populations that can engage in uh, protest. But now it's the reverse, really. We're finding that mobilization is happening on the margins in these rural communities, um, in places where, uh, you know, c- civil society in the traditional sense, is not as strong. So it's, mm-hmm. that is kind of, you know, the, the, the predictions, let's say, of my book on that front, you know, we see that, I, I think, um, in, you know, in, in reality, uh, coming to fruition. Um, but in terms of the dynamics of, you know, this very authoritarian Palestinian authority and their, and their uh, relationship to their own society, because of how much they're beholden to American and Israeli, um, uh, patronage, um, the, the current dynamic with the Trump administration pressuring the Palestinian Authority, cutting, to- cutting aid, uh, fully, even more fully supporting the Israeli occupation than ever before, even supporting Israeli annexation, as, as has recently been the case of the Palestinian territories, what this actually might um, uh, represent for the Palestinian leadership is an opening um, if they, you know, obviously some political agency is at work here, but if they're willing to take it, because for the mm-hmm. first time in, in in what like two decades, they they are not as beholden to their American patrons as they once were. They're, they're you know, the, the United States has already cut aid. The United States right. has already pushed them into a corner. Um, the Israelis, they're, you know, they're not they're not even pretending to engage in the in the, in the peace process anymore. They're talking about annexation. So this is. This represents, you know, a, a critical juncture for Palestinian leadership. Like, if you want things to change, this is the moment in time to reach out to your own society, to empower your own society, and to actually act as representatives of your society. You know, I, I yeah, wrote it's... something about this back in November. Um, Tarek Bakoni wrote something about this, I think, in the New York Times uh, a few months after. Um, so, So people are kind of picking up on this, that like, if the dynamics of externally, you know, external intervention are ruptured in this moment in time, maybe that means a way forward for um, the Palestinian leadership and its society to engage in, in, um, in a less, you know, authoritarian dynamic. Um, But again, it's hard to predict because at the end of the day, like these are people and political agency patterns and, you know, people might make decisions that go otherwise, but that's, that's kind of, uh, my, my two cents on the matter.
0: No, that's really, really helpful. Look, and it's also very, very hard to rebuild civil society when it's been, um, had the threads pulled out from it. Right. Um, before we go, can, can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on right now? I know this book is just out, but, um,
1: yeah, yeah. what's um, the next project? So um, when I was writing this book, um, it, it was it, it was building on my dissertation. Um, the the dynamics in the Middle East were that the United States was the uh, crucial actor in many in many cases, um, but that is changing. I think um, there was a recent book out by uh, Dan Nixon and Alexander Pooley called "Exiting Hegemony." I think people are are recognizing that. You know, particularly in certain regions, other actors might be coming to the fore, and how that's going to be impacting uh, politics is is kind of um, a question that uh, that needs to be addressed. So, my next project is is looking at similar dynamics, um, but particularly authoritarian diffusion within the Arab world um, and how different authoritarian regimes within the Arab world, particularly as the Americans exit, um, how they're impacting each other, how there are these technologies of repression that are um, proliferating and how that's impacting society and its ability to oppose um, current political dynamics, specifically focusing on other regional powers um, like the Emirates, like Israel, and their impact on um, the diffusion of authoritarianism in the region.
0: Well, that sounds really fascinating. Um, this book, which is um, <clears throat> polarized and demobilized legacies of authoritarianism in Palestine, uh, by Donna L. Kurd, is available on the Oxford University Press website. It's available through Indie Bookshop, uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Uh, we encourage everybody in this time with bookstores closed to try to reach out and find places that will will get you the book. And um, I recommend it to all. It's clearly written, and it's got a fascinating story and very, very important questions that are generalized beyond this case. So thank you so much for joining us today, Donna.
1: Thank you for having me.